Our last talk today is by Dr. Douglas Bruce, who comes from my alma mater, although I bet you joined the faculty long after I left. I did. <laughs> so he's going to discuss the opioid epidemic and the HIV infected people. Good afternoon. You guys have made it to the home stretch. Now I get to talk about drugs. Do I hit the bear? I hit the arrow here. Did you know? So I don't have any financially relevant affiliations to disclose. Methadone, that's how you spell methadone in Swahili if you're interested. <laughs> So we're going to learn about drugs, we're going to talk about drugs, and we're going to describe how drugs impact people. But before we do that, let's ask a question. According to the CDC, how many people died of opioid overdose in the U.S. in 2016? All right, you guys all use Google, it's fantastic. <laughs> so yes, opioid overdose is a leading cause or the leading cause of accidental death. It's kind of a shocking thing when you think about it. Opioids are a big problem. All right, so opioids are all over the place and as we're gonna talk about, most people blame prescribers. Prescribers are not really the people to blame. In a previous opioid, this is not the first opioid epidemic. We all realize that, right? This is not the first one, right? This goes back a long time ago. There was an opioid epidemic in 1917 in New York City. People coming back from World War I. For one year, they had a heroin maintenance program in New York City, which the U.S. government declared is completely illegal. And uh, ever since the Harrison Narcotic Act treatment has been difficult. But this is not because of prescribers necessarily in sh um, shunting lots of pills, but prescribers have a real role to play in this, and we're gonna talk about that. HIV and drugs are all over the world, so you can see in East Africa even that uh, there's a lot of HIV and drugs. So one of the things I used to do is create methadone maintenance programs in Africa, and that's because of the high volume of heroin that traffics through Africa. How many people knew that there's a lot of heroin in Africa? Right, lots of heroin. I know some people. <laughs> what is, I can get you connected on, on multiple continents. So what is addiction? You know, when you think of somebody coming into your office and this person is labeled as a drug addict or a substance user, sometimes it's really hard to see the humanity of that person. And something that you need to understand is what is, first of all, how do we define addiction in the life of that person? And it's two basic things. One is that they're engaging in a behavior that's reinforcing, right? It's pleasurable, okay? No one, despite what someone might say, no one is ever addicted to homework, to kale. Right? You don't become addicted to these things, right? There's also a loss of control, right? So if you tell a person, just stop, and they just stop, they're not an addict. Right? So don't spend a lot of time telling people just stop. 
unless it's your children, in which case you probably should. Okay. It won't change your children's behavior either. Why do people take drugs? Right. Well, a lot of people will say that it's really because they want to have a novel experience. Right. Steve Jobs, you guys have heard of him. He said one of the greatest things he ever did was LSD. That really opened up his mind to being creative. I'm not recommending this to you at all, but it's an example of someone who did drugs to feel different, to have a novel experience. Most of my patients are doing drugs to feel better. Most of my patients, most of the women we take care of and some of the men are victims of sexual assault. They may be victims of physical violence. They may be victims of emotional violence in the uh, home and all over the place. When we were looking at gender-based violence in Africa, it was shocking. It was absolutely shocking. Most women said that they were victims of um, sexual violence, physical violence, and there were even complaints about feeling um, being threatened and intimidated within healthcare settings. Right. So many of my patients are doing drugs. Why? They want to numb their brains. They want to feel better. But then the big question is lots of people do drugs, right? If you've ever been to a college campus, there are a few drugs in college, right? <laughs> and the question is, why, how do people make it through college doing all these drugs? Not everyone became someone with a use disorder, right? That's why it's opioid use disorder, not just opioid use. There are lots of people that take pain pills, do not become addicted. I've talked to drug users and they'll say, I'll be like, so you're doing heroin, why not crack? Like, I'm just so interested. And they'll be like, who would ever do that? It makes you all nervous, you bug out. Like, crack addicts are stupid. You talk to crack addicts, and they say, I don't know why people would do heroin. They slow down. Well, who wants to slow down? Calm your voice. Like, trying to calm down. <laughs> okay, I understand. Right? That's because addiction, like everything, is on this big continuum. And the first person that suggested this continuum to me is a guy, Michael Brown. He got this little Nobel Prize for this thing, LDL, which we just heard about. He, um, he and Goldstein did. And their argument was that everything, 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 everything in the human body is on this continuum, right? So things are a combination of you and your genetic environment and what? The world that you're in. You may be, we may say you may be genetically predisposed to being an alcoholic, but if you've never been exposed to alcohol, you cannot become an alcoholic. If you can, this is new research area. I want to know about it, all right? You can't. So it's a combination of the two. Drug users are many, and we don't have time to go into this in depth, genetically predisposed so that you'll find in a study that Nora Volkov did many years ago, she gave Ritalin to people who were not substance users. And a group of those people who had basal lower dopamine levels in the nucleus accumbens than others, when they received a drug that increased dopamine in that area, what? They felt better. If you like something, are you going to do more of it? Right. Yeah, look, Dunkin' Donuts in the Northeast lives on this principle, right? <laughs> it tastes great. Keep going. So what do drug dealers do in America in this day and age? They give out free drugs to what age group? Yeah. Middle school students and elementary school students. Why? How many people know what Percocet smells like on the breath? No, of course not. It's just like aspirin. It's an acid salt. Who cares? You can't smell anything. You're not going to be like, yeah, that was a baby aspirin. 
right? You have no idea. How many people would know that their kid was drinking vodka if they came in and breathed on them, right? We all know what vodka smells like, right? So if you want to get a buzz and you're at prom and you know your mom's going to beat you down if you've had vodka, just chew a Percocet, right? Drug dealers know this. Drug dealers give out free drugs. Why? They know this. They know that a proportion of the people they give drugs to will what? Enjoy it. And then what do you have? You have your next generation of business. What happens in this situation is you get it. The drugs now are taking over very primal pathways in the brain, taking over motivational priorities. The same thing that told your brain eating lunch was a really good idea, right? That's a dopamine burst in the nucleus accumbens. The same thing that told you sex is better than food, dopamine burst in the nucleus accumbens, is the very same thing that heroin does. But when you talk to heroin users, they say heroin's better than sex. Right? We've not done a controlled experiment on that. <laughs> take in there, I just, I take it as it is. All right. But you can imagine if here you have a substance that neurobiologically you want more than food and sex. It's going to reorganize your priorities. The money you get is going to go to what? Food? No. It's going to go to drugs. All right, so this is an old slide. This is from Dole uh, and Nicewander and Mary Jean Creek. Uh, Vincent Dole was the, one of the people that, he's an endocrinologist, led the charge to develop methadone many years ago in an earlier opioid crisis in New York City. And in the left half, you have the day in the life of the heroin user. And the little tick marks at the bottom are when people use, and this person uses. And when this person uses, this person feels high or euphoria. That's a, you know, the target feeling that someone wants. Anytime you give your body something, your body adapts to the presence of that substance, upregulating receptors. And so after a while, the same amount of substance doesn't make you feel great. Now you're tolerant and you're still using the same amount, but now you don't feel euphoria, you just feel even, right? You're now trying to live in a world of avoiding withdrawal. And that's a big deal, right? We were out on the streets in New Haven once. I was with an outreach worker. This one woman comes up and uh, is going to solicit oral sex from this outreach worker. He's got his Yale badge on. I'm a supervisor. I'm just standing there. She completely ignored me, by the way. I was, like, really offended. And so <laughs> she goes straight up to this guy and says, uh, I'll give you 10 bucks. You know, pay me 10 bucks. I'll give you a blowjob. And he's like, I work for Yale University. I'm an outreach worker. I'm here to help you. She's like, five bucks. <laughs> I'm an outreach worker. So she got in the car and went off. But the point was she was an opiate withdrawal. And she was willing to negotiate her price because she was sick and she didn't want to be sick. People engage in the most risk when they don't feel good. And on the far right, if you're trying to feel that euphoria again, all your only option is to try and use more. And that's when people can overdose and die. This is old data. This is from the last century, right? 1993. And this is work that Dave Metzger did in Philadelphia. And the basic idea early on in the, in the HIV epidemic was just looking at two cohorts of people. And, and we all know this old hat. If you're on methadone, you reduce your injection of heroin, you reduce your HIV acquisition. It's not 0% or it's 3.5%. That's because not only were they injecting cocaine in Philly at the time, but people have sex, and you can obviously get HIV from sex. 
How many people have patients who say it's not really a problem, right? Just me. My patient's like, look, it's, it's weekend cocaine. It's a reward for having to deal with you, Dr. Bruce. This is what I do on Friday night, right? For individuals who you're struggling to engage, there is a very long, and we obviously don't have time to go into it, a whole model of ways to engage in behavior change with patients, the trans-theoretical model of change. And you can see the little wheel there, and the slides will be available to everyone. But the basic idea is that some people are pre-contemplative or in denial. And those are the folks where you say, I think you're an alcoholic. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Right. So that doesn't go very far uh, very quickly. And the thing that those individuals need is external evidence, right? They need something like where I'll say to the patient, I know you don't think that you have a problem. However, your parole officer is looking to violate you and put you in prison. Your parole officer thinks there's a problem, right? Trying to help the person see that their behavior has external consequences. So when we talk about medication assisted for the treatment of an opioid use disorder, what do we mean? Well, it's a medication that's going to go to the brain, helping people feel better. And practically and importantly, it's something that reduces risk and makes people feel better and helps them do well with their HIV therapy. So the top's obviously an MRI. It's a PET scan below. This is a PET scan looking at the mu opioid receptor. And so what happens is, and the zero bup, which is no buprenorphine, you see that there's lots of stuff lighting up. Right? There, there are many parking spaces in the parking lot of the brain. And that red dot on the far right in the middle of the brain, which I think I have right there. Look at that. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. See, I'm dangerous with the mouse. The little red dot's the nucleus accumbens. That's the part of the brain that gets really happy when you have sex or eat lunch, probably more with the sex than the eating lunch. But that's, that's going to be our main target area, although opioids go throughout. And you can see that 2 milligrams makes a difference, but at 16 milligrams, you've occupied up to 95% of opioid receptors. The way I explain this to patients is, look, you take a medication, now the parking lot's full. If you do heroin, the heroin's got nowhere to park. Right. All right, so now we're going to talk about buprenorphine. Hopefully everyone knows buprenorphine. Everyone has a waiver for buprenorphine. Everyone's prescribing buprenorphine. Tell us what you're doing, but you can be honest. I mean, obviously you can be honest. We would encourage you to be honest. This is easy. There's no right answer. Excellent. All right. So most of you don't have a waiver and so can't treat anyone. So my apologies to those who legally are not allowed to do this, right? So um, although, like in Canada, pharmacies are the main dispenser of methadone, for example, so maybe our country could get as progressive and allow pharmacists to do this as well, right? So when you put someone on this case in methadone, this is, again is Dolan, nice wander. That's the little M there. It helps somebody feel okay. And we had talked earlier when we were talking about pain, methadone can be dosed once daily for the treatment of an opioid use disorder. That's because the therapeutic dosing for this is the trough level, which is what we're interested in. If you do the little H, right? Again, the parking lot's full, nowhere for the heroin to go. 
if you do enough heroin, you can get some euphoria, but it's still blunted. So what are the medications that we use to treat an opioid use disorder that have efficacy? Well, number one is methadone. Methadone is the most maligned medication in the world, I believe. It is one of the most fantastic medications. Right? If you think about the number of lives saved, right? but it's horribly, horribly been marketed. Right? I've never seen a mother say, thank God my child's on methadone. All right? Right? But we need more people to think that way. It does save lives. The reason that we did methadone programs in Africa is that it was the cheapest, most effective intervention with the greatest retention rates, right? $54 a year to maintain someone on methadone, right? It's cheaper even than the HIV therapy and less toxicity than uh, Mike Sag presented earlier. So great retention. Buprenorphine can be done in an office-based setting. Remember, methadone can't, has to be in an opioid treatment program, that's OTP stands for. Buprenorphine can be done, it's not, as good in retention. We did an RCT years ago. It was, the primary outcome was around liver safety and buprenorphine. This was a NIDA clinical trial. But the secondary outcome was looking at retention. And we found that people were not retaining buprenorphine as well. This has to do with the pharmacology of the medication and the lack of withdrawal symptoms when you step off of it. But the implication was it may not be as effective for HIV prevention because what's critical is staying on treatment. We heard earlier in Tim's talk about a new depo naltrexone formulation. The big caveat to that study was those were incarcerated individuals, so they've been a forced abstinence for a period of time prior to being released. Their first dose was given within the correctional environment, and they were followed out in a very supporting environment with lots of engagement. So depo naltrexone is not recommended in the general practice for the guy who just showed up this week who's an active heroin user, all right? The, just to make sure you understand the implications of the data presented earlier. Now, Trexone, it does not have retention as good as methadone or buprenorphine. Of the three, methadone has the best pain-relieving properties. And so often for our patients who have both pain and addiction, we put them on methadone. If you just walk off your methadone, what's gonna happen? And as you can imagine, if you walk off a treatment, you're going to wind up returning to your previous behavior. So how do you provide care for this population? Well, number one is that we want what's called low threshold, right? That's how drug dealers work. It's easy to get drugs. We need treatment to be easy. This has been a theme for the entire day around HIV care. The whole conversation about, do you start someone in the emergency room when they find out that they're HIV positive is why? They're there, engage them now. That's low threshold, right? Rapid access, let me help you right now. So we wanna make sure that people have access to that. And if you became a buprenorphine prescriber and you were working with patients with an opioid use disorder in your clinic, you could do that. And I would encourage you to, if you prescribe any opioid that could lead to an addiction, you should consider the prescribing of an opioid that can solve the problem, right? The best practice in treatment for an opioid use disorder does include counseling. A lot of counseling has been done. Uh, 12 steps NA is as good as cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, the most important thing is engagement. Therapy is very, 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 very important. It gets minimized. I think we all think that pills are the solution to all our problems in life. 
My patients certainly do, right? And then they make me anxious and I want to use Xanax. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, really, we, we do need patients and it's very important for patients to understand the importance of therapy. Therapy is mandated in our system, but we have a very, we have over 100 therapists. We have a huge behavioral health department. It's, it's very easy for me to connect people to therapy. You always want to treat the medical consequences of addiction. So whether that's HIV, hepatitis B or C, we have an active hep C treatment program in all our addiction programs. In Tanzania, that we're doing active TB treatment within the methadone program, linking adherence to you come and you get your HIV therapy, your TB therapy, and your methadone. One of the things that's obvious is that people who use drugs and have HIV also have higher morbidity and mortality than the general population of people with HIV. And we do know that people get discriminated against, but I want you all just to be, be mindful of the fact that even substance users are able to take their medications. Right? And I think you all know that quite well. In the past, oftentimes people were denied access I'm still amazed at sometimes where people are like, oh, we're not going to give this guy therapy. This is happening more in the hep C world. I get pushback from the Yale folks in the liver department. So ID treats hep C and so does the liver folks. We think we do a better job, right? But one of the things is like, we'll treat active alcoholics. We'll treat people who are doing drugs. Why? Well, because they can get cured. And because if you've got good syringe exchange, or other things, I view, for example, the alcohol plus hep C as someone has two medical disorders. They had hep B, hep C, I'd be even more anxious about treating them, right? Or HIV, hep C, if you've got alcohol and hep C, we treat them. Evan Woods has done great work in British Columbia and just shows that whether injecting drugs or not, you can do well taking HIV therapy. All over the world, people are linking drug treatment to other outcomes. I was in India in November for CDC, we went to visit this way out in the middle of nowhere, and they were giving sofosbuvir to clanosphere directly observed with buprenorphine. The entire treatment of those DAs, $120, by the way. So I was very tempted to purchase some, but did not because <laughs> it's illegal. Um, in Tanzania, I mentioned that we're uh, linking HIV and TB therapy, and even in New Haven, we've got, we're doing HIV hep C treatment into the methadone clinic. So th I've, these are in your packet. These are two standardized questions that were validated in the primary care environment, and this is something that's really easy. You don't have to use these questions, but if you do, this you should look for evidence-based validated questions, but these are just really simple. And if you're going to screen everyone, we've got over 34,000 patients in the main health center system. So we got a lot of people we got to screen. And so we got to ask basic questions, right? But these can be really good. If people answer yes, obviously you want to follow up with more, uh, more questions. I've already mentioned that people can do drugs and take their HIV therapy and other therapies. We've had great success with people getting cured from their hep C. If you're prescribing opioids, you must prescribe naloxone. From a risk management standpoint, if your patient overdoses and dies and you do not prescribe naloxone, you could face serious issues, all right, if somebody wanted to pursue you legally. The standard is naloxone. If you don't do the standard of care, you open yourself up to litigation, all right? So if you prescribe opioids, prescribe naloxone. 
Make sure that you're looking at the guidelines. As I mentioned earlier, there are guidelines on the treatment of chronic pain, right? Non-malignant pain, so non-cancer pain. Get familiar with those. There are a lot of great links and other things. Make sure that you, we said earlier, we all have adopted the patient on really weird opioid regimens, right? I had a guy sent to me once he was taking, he had 15 Percocet prescribed to take daily in this really weird staggered regimen. And when I tried to sit down with him to get him change, to change it, of course, his statement was, I've always done it this way. Why do I have to change now? And I said, because I'm your doctor. <laughs> and I'm not going to prescribe it that way anymore, right? So he was very sad to meet me. <laughs> In your package, there are a lot of website links to um, which obviously you can't click on in the paper form, but these are very useful resources with the American Pain Society, the American Academy of Pain Medicine. PCSS is a very useful system for individuals who are looking for more information on how do I treat people with medication-assisted treatment. Uh, you can connect to peers, people can give you support over time. And then lastly, for the large proportion of the audience who did not uh, get the buprenorphine training, I do encourage you to really think about doing it. Buprenorphine is the easiest thing I do. Absolutely. It is easier than HIV care. There's no buprenorphine genetic mutation drug resistance. <laughs> it's an opioid. Patients are highly motivated to take it. Right? The question from your patient won't be, oh, doc, I don't want to take it. It'll be, can I have more of that? That's pretty good stuff. Right? So I really encourage you. We have great success in our HIV patients who are on methadone and suboxone because they're coming in and we're able to do lots with them. We use also buprenorphine and methadone as something called contingency management, which means that people follow the carrot. So we have a waiver-based system where like the prescriptions are all in the pharmacy and we give an embossed piece of paper to patients that's got all this wonderful language on it, and they can get it from anywhere. So you might say, well, if you're going to get your Suboxone today, you need to meet with your therapist. Oh, I can't make the appointment. Well, your therapist has got the voucher, so you probably should go because you can come see me, but I can't give you any more Suboxone. It's at the pharmacy, and they're waiting for the voucher, right? So we instituted this 15 years ago or so in the early time of Suboxone, and we did it because no one went to their therapy, 0%, right? They had, we had manualized CBT, no one ever went. It would be a mirror, if somebody went, they got lost and they just showed up by accident. Right? <laughs> so use, we really encourage people, Suboxone can be fantastic use as contingency management. So we link it to everything, whether it's, you know, you need to see an outreach worker, you need to see, you need to go get your labs, whatever it is. And people will follow the Suboxone or the methadone. Right? Does it sound paternalistic? Yeah, it is paternalistic, right? But it works really well. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that contingency management is very effective for people who do drugs, including helping them to achieve greater sobriety from other substances. Uh, this was a program that was done this past March uh, by the National Academies. And this was a whole program looking at integrating infectious diseases into uh, in response to the opioid epidemic. And on the far right, you can see that there's an agenda and videos. 
the videos are all free and open to the public. There's a lot of really good information there. And I encourage you all to check that out. And lastly, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is the new guideline for the treatment of chronic pain in people with HIV. As I mentioned, the, the paper document just summarizes everything, but the online portion of this has a lot of great resources and links to really work through everything from, how do I understand urine toxicology of my patient? What do I do if the patient's actively doing drugs? What if they're on methadone and have chronic pain and I need a split dose? What about the drug interactions that I need to be concerned about with methadone and whatever medication? So it's very useful. And if you have lots of questions or concerns about this or feedback about this, let us know because we want to make uh, any subsequent versions of this much better. And with that, I thank you for your time and thank you so much for making it to the end of the day. Historically, um, the state-sponsored methadone clinics are, are able to take care of about 10% of the people who want to go to methadone clinics in Illinois. Is that true in Connecticut? Yeah, so, so it's a great question. What proportion of people who need help get help through methadone? It's a little hard to know because we don't have national registries on methadone for privacy issues. So we actually don't know how many people are on methadone maintenance in the United States. Uh, but traditionally, it's a combination of clinics not being able to staff up and serve everyone in need, and also the stigma. In the current opioid epidemic, right, most of the people, like in Connecticut, are young, suburban, and white, and they don't, their parents don't want them to go to urban methadone clinics. What the, what's the policy? Um, limits uh, methadone prescribing by physicians. Why, why are there restrictions? The U.S. government. So it's, it's against the law to prescribe opioids for the treatment, uh, except for buprenorphine. Buprenorphine, so the Data 2000 law was the first law since the Harrison Narcotics Act. The Harrison Narcotics Act outlawed the ability to prescribe opioids, and this is because you know, heroin's the brand name, right? It was made by Bayer. And they used to put it in cough syrup for children, which you can imagine in the uh, 19th century made people feel really calm. So it's really the government's concern that, and this is today, right? Doesn't the government consider physicians to be the greatest liability in the prescribing of opioids, even though we're not actually the real problem? Uh, there's certainly, a, we all know the few doctors in our communities who are the problem, but uh, by and large, it isn't. So it's a government requirement. Many countries in the world, such as Canada, allow a GP to write for methadone maintenance and for the patient to fill it at the local pharmacy. I think, at least when I was in New Haven, that the um, uh, heroin was used in England for terminal cancer patients. I don't know whether that's still true. And uh, they, and they, the, 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 uh, the, the videos of those look like the patients were doing very well. I'm sure they felt great. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> heroin is a better analgesic than morphine. Yeah. That, that what it, What are your thoughts on uh, lofixidine for withdrawal symptoms? Right. So th this is a medication. So it's in the clonidine world. This is a medication that can help 
with people who, so this was recently FDA approved, some medication that if you have opioid withdrawal symptoms, it can help with those symptoms. So uh, it will not reduce relapse. It is not treatment for an opioid use disorder. So it would make you feel better for a few days, but most patients are gonna relapse back to heroin. So I think the real question is, what are you using it in combination with and what are you doing to help the patient? If the person was going into detoxification to get off all opioids, then they need to go to an inpatient environment or some supportive therapy. Your first reduction in relapse is 90 days after your last use of drugs. Right? So a five-day detox gives you 85 more days before you have a measurable, uh, measurable reduction. So yes, it's going to help you feel better, but it probably won't change your outcome. Someone wanted to know about, they, should they be concerned about the increase in mortality rates in Russian trials of naltrexone? Yeah, so naltrexone, deponaltrexone was FDA approved in the United States based on data from Russia. Uh, it has never been studied in the U.S., largely because of the ethical concern of randomizing people to naltrexone or placebo, because the standard of, you know, we... We don't randomize people to, you know, Big Tarby versus placebo to see which one, right? We don't do that. And so they did do this in Russia, which has different ethical standards than in the United States. <laughs> and uh, based on that data, it was FDA approved. There have been ongoing evaluations of overdose, and uh, it has not been widely reported, although there was a recent paper by Daniel Wolf and others looking at overdose. Yes, it's something that we are concerned about. I will tell you that we have universally not had any success with depo naltrexone for the treatment of an opioid use disorder. The success, Sandy Springer's success in the prison environment was really shocking to a lot of us. And I think that it's because that these individuals have been incarcerated for a protracted period of time. And so is a measurably different population. But the people that come into our environment, detox and want to go on depo naltrexone, last maybe two months, and then relapse. And the concern we have is mentioned, if your tolerance has changed, you're at increased risk of overdose when you relapse. So great question, thank you. What about drug interactions with boosted PIs? Yep, so oxycodone is boosted by ritonavir. So I always tell patients, yeah, we can go down on your dose because you know you're getting boosted, right? They never believe me. Uh, ever, right? But that's that's actually true. Otherwise, uh, buprenorphine does not have a lot of interactions with HIV therapy. The FDA still requires drug interaction studies with methadone and with buprenorphine, and those are all updated in the HHS guidelines as they become available. Any comments about cannabis? So, yeah. So, <laughs> so cannabis, uh, and in the guideline, it talks a little bit about cannabis. Cannabis has been shown in multiple studies to decrease the amount of opioids people have to take. So we don't know why, to be honest. So we're still learning what cannabinoids do. I mean, cannabinoids are involved in psychosis. They're involved in anxiety. They're involved in all kinds of things. But people are able to decrease their opioid load. So we, I work in a federally qualified healthcare center, which means that my malpractice is the U.S. government, and the U.S. government still states that cannabis is illegal. So we're in a conflicted position because we can't actually bring people on and get people started, but we can refer people to outside facilities to do that. And we do, we do offer that to many patients. We do not penalize people for the consumption of cannabis. So 
Like in our methadone programs, we don't screen for THC. That's also because you couldn't get take-home bottles because it's still considered an illegal substance for the feds. So, but the feds don't require what we screen for. So we're not breaking any rules. We're just being creative in our interpretation. What can increase the retention in the buprenorphine treatment? So the buprenorphine itself is its own incentive to return because it's, from the patient's perspective, they've gotten their life back. You were doing heroin, you're meeting random people to get drugs. Now you've got a medication, that medication makes you feel normal. And that's what you've been wanting to feel for a long time. And you hold access to that, right? So the person is incentivized to see you. Now patients may miss visits, that happens. Patients who are consistently missing would be a signal that you're giving them too much medication and that they're stretching things out, right? Patients will often want more. There is a black market for Suboxone, obviously, like there is for everything else. There's a black market for Ritonavir and Viagra, right? There's a black market for everything. My patients want to get insurance, sell it on the street, which kind of seems like a really difficult thing because they're big cans, but they work it out, right? They've got a whole racket. So uh, I think it is important to just keep in mind that patients always do what they think is greatest for their survival, just like all of us do. And it, the medication itself becomes an incentive for people to come. If a physician says he has difficulty getting people to go to pain management clinics. So he ends up giving hydrocodone. Right. So everybody else have this problem? No pain management clinic wants to take your patients, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I wound up creating a pain clinic because I had nowhere to send people. I then did not like myself for a long time when I did that. Uh, it's, it is very difficult. Um, and, and ultimately, if you're rich and you can get whatever you want for pain management, if you're poor and you have complicated medical problems, then your options become very limited. So what I would encourage people to do is look at the guidelines. Hydrocortone is a short-acting opioid, so it would not be what we would want people to be on for long-term treatment. We want people to be on things, you know, we, I always tell patients, if the pain lasts a long time, you want the medicine to last a long time. Thank you very much, Bruce. Thank you. And thank you all for staying with it. We'll see you next year. I don't know where, but we'll see you. <laughs>